Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. This is an episode in the series SCAS Talks Spotlight, where we focus on a specific topic or event. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and in this episode you can listen to a collection of voices and thoughts from the symposium in the European Afterlife, which was hosted by SCAS in March 2023. The symposium was organized by Jenny Larsson, professor of Baltic linguistics at Stockholm University and principal investigator of the multi and interdisciplinary project LAMP, Languages and Myths of Prehistory. During one day, the members of the LAMP group and invited speakers gathered to shed some light on the notion of death and afterlife among early Indo-European populations and to identify a possible common background for rituals and funeral practices. We start off with invited speaker Jan Bremer, Professor Emeritus in Religious Studies at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands, who tells us more about the thoughts and beliefs of the ancient Greeks about life after death. For the Greeks, the afterlife would be seen in first instance as a journey. But the problem is a bit for us scholars, is that the Greeks were also a bit wary and careful in talking about the afterlife and the underworld. So they like to use euphemisms in a way like we have that also a little bit, I think you would say, he's not dead, but he passed away. They wouldn't say, I go to the underworld. They would say, I go there. Basically, they would say, we go on a journey. And the journey, they imagined that you would travel. We don't really hear how, but I presume that they would think they walked because that was the main way of moving around until they came to a river. And that river had to be crossed to come, as we can also say, to the other side. And that river had to be crossed. You couldn't do it on your own. You couldn't say, oh, I swim over it because the river was seen as something quite dangerous, making lots of noise, having lots of whirlpools. And then there was a ferryman never really a fairy woman, a ferryman, which was called Charon, who was supposed to put you over in the boat, in his ferry. And Charon is always imagined as an old man. When you came to the other side, you presumably walk on till you come to a kind of palace. It's often called the House of Hades. That palace was guarded by dogs. This seems to be really a very old motif, which we find also in Indo-Iranian traditions, but also in Scandinavian traditions, that there are dogs guarding the entry. And then when you come into that palace, that hall, after that, really, our sources are, are pretty silent. There must have been the king of the underworld, Hades. He had a wife, Persephone. And it's only in later sources that we hear that there was a kind of judgment as popular is imagined. What have you done in afterlife? It is very interesting to see that in a number of texts, this underworld is imagined as a meadow. We find that also in Indo-Iranian traditions where the meadows are there for the cows to graze on. But the Greeks, of course, they were no longer nomads. They had people living in cities. So I find it very interesting that they kept his idea of a meadow, but without the cows, so to speak. Some later 
groups of which we hear in the 5th century. They mentioned the afterlife really like a big banquet, a symposium. There was always light, whereas traditionally in the underworld is seen as a dark and gloomy place. But this special group had a, a bit like what you find in early Christian texts. There's a joyous atmosphere. The sun is always shining. There are roses. There's a nice wind, a, a little bit of warm wind. And you're dancing there and having a, a good time, basically. After this brief journey to the Greek underworld, let's return to the SCUS Talks studio. Welcome to you, Yanni Larsson. You have been with us on SCUS Talks previously, in episode number four, actually, in the very beginning. This episode we called A Treasure Hunt to Find the Origin of the Indo-European Languages. And we talked a lot about the LAMP project and how you're working within the group also to find your treasures. Now you have this symposium, Indo-European Afterlife. What was your thought behind this topic? This was um, a topic that we all got very excited about and very interested in, because in the research group, we're always looking for common topics and ideas that we all find interesting, and sometimes it's difficult. But when we came up with this idea, it was very easy. First of all, the archaeologists, of course, have a lot of material that has to do with the afterlife and with death and burials, funerals and all the stuff that's sort of very, very visible in the material. And then the people working with mythology and history of religion were also like, oh, yeah, but there are all these ideas about the afterlife and what happens and what you have to do to prepare for the next life and that kind of thing. And then, of course, the historical linguists have all these words that have to do with Well, life and death and ideas about what happens. It was like each had a piece of the puzzle and like, yes, we should put it all together and see what happens. And then hopefully we will be able to publish a book on this topic in the future. Very exciting. And now in this podcast episode, we can dive into some of the details. And now with us in the studio, we have Anders Kalif, Birgit Olsen and Ricardo Ginevra. Would you like to say a few words about yourselves? I'm Birgit Olsen. I'm from Copenhagen. I studied as an ordinary Indo-Europeanist, you can say, working only with language. Then back in 2008, we got a pretty big project in Copenhagen called The Roots of Europe, which was also interdisciplinary, also including archaeology, mythology, and a little bit of genetics. But that was before the ADNA revolution. My name is Riccardo Ginevra. I work at the Università Cattolica del Sacro Cuore di Milano, in short uh, UCSC Milan, uh, as a researcher. And before that, I was a postdoc researcher in Copenhagen at the Roots of Europe uh, Research Center with a, a Marie Curie research project funded by the European Commission, which main topic was how to combine the study of linguistics, the study of mythology, and precisely the uh, and archaeological data. I'm Anders Kalif and I'm an archaeologist in the LAMP project and I'm um, working here at Uppsala University as a professor but I have also my longest experience is from the field archaeology in the National Heritage Board of Sweden and also with some international projects. 
I could say that I've been collaborating with Anders long before I met him because actually I was reading his papers on how archaeological data on fire rituals may be understood in the light of comparative in the European religion, comparative in the European ritual. And long before I met him, I was already reading his stuff on this topic. That was so fascinating to hear about afterwards. Ricardo's interpretations, they fit so very well. So that it's actually a good proof that archaeology works and that Ricardo's field also works and that it makes almost the same result. That is fascinating. It has been almost like a common thread for the whole LAMP project that once we begin talking to each other, we find out that, oh my God, that works with this and you have this material and it all fits together. It's really like we have these different pieces of a common puzzle and like, give me your pieces so that I can complete the picture. So, yeah. The one must say that there are rather big fields where the linguists have pieces But the archaeologists don't have the corresponding pieces and the other way around. So we have to pick the right subjects to get somewhere. Yeah, let's start with you then, Anders. Can you give us an example of what can you find in your studies there when you study the burials and the sites where you find things? The short answer, you can find nothing sometimes. And that is actually the most interesting thing. Before this Indo-European question came up again, People could ask me, why do you dig this? You can't find it. It's just a few bones laying around there. But this fragmented appearance of some of the bone deposits and so on, that actually could match some aspects of Indo-European afterlife beliefs. So what does the fragmenting mean? Why do they do that? One fundamental concept is that the body should dissolve. It should go to the fire. It should go back to the earth. It should go to water and it should... uh, also go to the rocks. And you can see that part of the stones in the Old Norse Scandinavian mythology, I mean the rocks and the stones could be described as Ymir's bone, the primordial giant that was killed by the first gods and his body was cut up and they actually made all of the existence, the world and the creations out of his body parts. This way to see it would be that the burial ritual, its meaning was that the parts of the body should in a reversal way, go back to the creation. So it comes from Ymir's body, but it goes back to it. It goes back to the fundamental elements. Birgit, you are looking at the treatment of the dead bodies, amongst other things. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? What did you do with the dead body? In principle, you could say there are two possibilities. You can inhumate the body or you can burn it. But before that, what happens? And it seems that the bodies were tied. They were bound. And why was that? Of course, we cannot really get an answer to that, but an obvious answer would be then the poor bodies cannot come up and interfere with the lives of the living. They're not supposed to. And in order for the living and the dead, to get in touch with each other. Because sometimes that's useful. Then you have to use magic again. And magic in Old Norse, that's seidr. And that has to do with the verb that means to bind. And for instance, Odin is a great magician. And when he wants to get in touch with people on the other side. He can do it 
but he has to use his magic. Otherwise, the two worlds are apart. Do you have an example? There's such a beautiful poem from the Rig Veda, which is uh, the oldest Indic literature, where you pray to the soil, to the ground. Take this body gently. Treat it like a mother would with her baby under her garment, the edge of her garment. So don't hurt this poor body. It has to go on somehow. Of course it will decay, but precisely how, nobody really knows. But hopefully it will go on to some wonderful meadows. Because the early Indo-Europeans, they were pastoralists. They loved big rolling meadows. They loved their cattle. That's the ideal way to go or place to go after you're dead. Sounds nice anyway. It's not the only possibility. Not all the dead go to nice places. They have to be selected. Of course, uh, Ricard would agree. Not everybody goes to Valhalla. Yes. So, Ricardo, what happens then? Where do they end up? Well, from comparative analysis of different Indo-European traditions, such as the Old Norse one, but also the ancient Greek one, and in some ways also the Indic one and several others, it seems clear that there were at least two ways to imagine the afterlife. So either as a place of suffering, because death is the opposite of life, and therefore if you're dead, you're not supposed to do things that you do while you're living. So, for instance, the dead do not eat or they don't eat nice food, they eat terrible food. The dead do not see, or they see poorly, and many other similar activities that we are used to understand as a part of functional, healthy, safe life. Actually, one of these activities is precisely to have social relations with each other. That's a big part of who we are in general as human beings, and that was definitely how earlier in the European traditions envisaged life as a social activity, basically. You live with your kin, with your clan, with your family, with your extended group. And then there was, as Birgit was mentioning, another afterlife, way more positive and optimistic afterlife, which was a place where not only you could keep doing what you were doing when you were alive, but some of these activities were even better. The way we imagine heaven in many contemporary religions as well. It's a place where you're supposed to have a nice life, not just you know normal life that can have both nice things and worse things. You're supposed to have a perfect life. But how do you get there? It's about, for instance, in Old Norse uh, texts, it's about your profession, basically, or your social group, basically uh, warriors, kings who fight, they are selected to go to the nice afterlife. And in Old Norse, in, in Norse mythology, of course, uh, Valkyries, uh, these uh, warrior women, select, choose these fallen warriors to live with Odin in Valhall and wait for the end of time, so-called uh, Ragnarok. Because when Ragnarok comes, all the souls of these fallen warriors shall help Odin, the supreme god, fight the enemies of the gods. So what about these Valkyries? Can you tell us more? I agree with uh, a scholar, a German scholar, uh, Matthias Egeler, that Valkyries started out as a group of demonic female battle and death uh, deities, such as those you find in, for instance, in ancient Greek, you know, so-called Erinis, or in, in Roman, uh, the, the so-called Furies. So 
you can find groups of demonic women who are associated with battle, with death, with ravens and other birds that feed on corpses. So I think that's how Valkyries started out. And I think that you can also see that in the etymology of their of their name, which may be related to a root, a Proto-Indo-European term, which originally meant to taste. So Valkyries may originally have meant those who taste the dead, the slain. But then I think that they ended up being basically influenced by another type of deity, which has many parallels in other Indo-European traditions, namely the heavenly maiden who chooses someone as husband, And this someone is usually someone who was mortal. And then, thanks to the love of the heavenly maiden, he ends up becoming immortal and actually spending the afterlife in heaven. And now we will hear more about the ritual of mourning, immortalization through poetry, and about the meaning of fire rituals from Anders Jorgensen, Peter Jaksonrova, and Terje Östergaard. Could you introduce yourselves also? So my name is Anders Jorgensen, uh, Anders Jansen, however you want to pronounce it. I'm from Denmark, Copenhagen, but I've been living in Sweden for quite a while now. And I'm in the LAMP project, my focus is mainly on the Western Indo-European languages, Celtic, Italic, Germanic. Specifically Celtic, that's where sort of my the main force of my research is. And I'm mainly doing work on sort of the statistics, that is how the the various Indo-European branches sort of split up from the proto-language. But then I'm also doing sort of on the side, doing sort of stuff that relates to this more cultural side of the proto-Indo-Europeans and what we can say about them, how they behaved and what they believed in. Uh, so my name is Peter Jackson Rova. I'm a professor of the history of religions at Stockholm University. And I've been interested in issues concerning Indo-European religion and especially comparative mythology and poetics. So I'm interested in working on especially poetic, early poetic texts as sources to religious notions. My name is Tarje Östigor. I'm an archaeologist here at Uppsala University and my particular research interests are death and cremation and partly sacrifice and how it connects from the more modern ethnography to Bronze Age and further beyond, and also to Nepal and India, where I have done numerous fieldwork studying cremations live. Shall we start with Anders Jorgensen then? You are looking, if I've understood correctly, at the at mourning, the ritual of mourning. What we can see is that there are a lot of features that repeat in many cultures, Indo-European, non-Indo-European, They can be from anywhere in the world, basically. And what we typically see in this situation where a close relative or maybe a tribal leader dies is that people will cry, they will weep, they will wail, they will often beat their chest or beat their head. They may scratch their skin so that it bleeds, their cheeks. They can throw themselves on the ground, roll around on the ground. They can pick up dirt or ashes and rub it in their, in their hair and they can tear out their hair. So these are sort of strangely repeating patterns, or it's sort of fundamentally human to, to act like this. But of course, how do you say something about something that's prehistoric? So we basically, we don't have any texts about this. In the specific Indo-European context, we don't really have anything that tells us how they behaved. So that leaves us with, we can try to reconstruct the language and reconstruct specific words that tells us something about how people would behave in, in these circumstances. And people have done this. I'm not the first to look at this. 
We can, for instance, reconstruct a verbal root, uh, plech, as it's called. Some real Proto-Indo-European there, yes. I'm speaking Proto-Indo-European now, plech. And that root is sometimes used in the daughter languages to mean just to hit, to hit something against something. But it's often used in several branches, meaning to hit yourself, and specifically in the context of mourning. So to hit yourself as a sign of extreme emotional distress. That root gives Latin plango, which means to hit, but it also means comes to means to cry, and anybody knows Italian. Piango, I cry, piangere, to cry. So it just means to cry. So there we can see this semantic shift from to hit yourself to cry. And that's something we find in various languages. You find it in Latin, we find it in Slavic, you find it in Germanic, specifically with the reflexes of this particular root. And that allows us to some degree of certainty to reconstruct this meaning for this root for Proto-Indo-European as well. And the new thing I'm, I'm sort of looking at in, in my text is that there's another root, so it's not plech anymore, it's a different root, kecht. And that root is, well, it's usually reconstructed with a meaning to fall down. So if people are familiar with Latin, kadere means to fall down. Now, this root is also behind a whole group of words that are specifically mean sorrow or anger or even gives us our Germanic word for hate. I'm suggesting that it has a verbal root and that's this root that means to fall down because that uh, simplifies things. And this word for sorrow or hate is typically explained, the semantics of it is typically explained as describing the reaction of the violent death of a relative. I don't know if that has to be the case, but that's usually how it's explained, how you get from sorrow to anger to hate. Sounds a little bit like the different stages of grieving. like Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mourning, anger, hate. Of course, it is human, it human is, reactions. It, it doesn't mean acceptance, unfortunately. We need the words, the specific Indo-European words to, to say something about yeah. the Indo-Europeans, yeah, the speakers uh, and the culture. Yeah, this, of course, is completely independent of where the speakers were in time and in place, because this is, this is behavior that any human being at any point in time could, uh, any culture could uh, display this. It's just that we, in this case, we can use the language sort of to, to zoom in on specific behavior, some which we believe is 5,000 years ago, something like that. What about you, Peter? What are you looking at in, in the afterlife? I have decided to focus more on how the afterlife has been imagined, how it might be described. And going a bit further ahead of just looking at various descriptions of how people in the past who happened to speak Indo-European languages have imagined life after death, I also want to say something about how this notion can be linked to certain ritual performances and to especially to poetry. Because we need to remember that our oldest sources to these notions are poetic texts. So if we go to the most important textual traditions that we have in order to say something, to make solid statements about Indo-European religion, we look at especially at ancient Indian, Iranian, Greek, archaic Greek texts. And these texts are poetic texts. When it comes to notions about the afterlives, most of them were composed by poets. And these poets were also part of, a, of an oral culture. Their poetry has been written down, but it wasn't written down until later on. The early or ancient Indian 
and Iranian poetry was preserved orally for a very long time. And what can we see in these poems? When poets are referring to what will happen to someone who has died, is that the poet is approaching, addressing this person in many cases. This is the person who also has entered into a relation with the poet. So the poet is actually talking to someone who has certain expectations, and the poet can also claim a certain form of expertise when it comes to not just imagining the afterlife, but also really making it happen through poetry. The poet does not just describe the afterlife, but to some extent also realizes and performs it. And there's a very central notion here, the notion of fame or glory, which recurs in many of these early Indo-European traditions. And if you want to look for the most fundamental concept in order to imagine, in order to describe what Indo-European religion was about, then this notion is absolutely pivotal. The idea of glory as that which does not perish, that which lives on after you're dead. But glory you achieve through your deeds, through your, what you, you accomplish in life. But also you need, to, you need to have someone securing that glory for you, and that's the poet, who also gets compensation for this poetic performance. How could they manifest this glory then? So the notion of glory is very, it's very essential. And you find it in many of these traditions in personal names. It's a recurrent concept. You know, names like Ludwig, for instance, would have the concept of glory and battle, the one who wins glory in battle. And you have it in Cleopatra, who has fame from her father. So then the Greek word Cleos and Chleva in Germanic, Shravas in Sanskrit are etymologically related, so they reflect a protoform, Klevos. And this concept also appears in notions about the afterlife. The idea is that the poet secures glory for someone who is about to die or when this person will die. He or she will be remembered through poetry. The afterlife can be imagined as a poetically fashioned condition. Earlier on, Ricardo talked about these two options, so these two alternative ways to spend your days after you die. And the first notion would be, you know, the, um, where most people end up, those who didn't get celebrated in poetry, so they would end up in a bleak and not necessarily hell in, in, in the Christian sense, but a place where you just turn into shadows and wither away. But you wither away because people don't sing about you anymore, because people don't remember you. They don't make an effort to keep you alive through poetry. Those fortunate ones who end up elsewhere, they are also the ones who have been celebrated in poetry. So the important thing is to be remembered here in, in your example by poetry. These early poets or those who were part of the audience They were just as sophisticated and uh, advanced as we are. And they, of course, understood that it's not just about believing, strongly believing in certain things that do not seem uh, necessarily seem convincing. But to some extent, it's also very true that you do enter into a kind of virtual existence when someone talks or sings about you. It's not just rhetoric, but it's also fact. Many of the figures that appear in early poetry we still talk about and we still read about them. Very interesting. 
And um, Terje, you're looking then again at burials, if I've understood correctly. There is a huge paradox with afterlife and funerals in general. And that is, when you die, the most important thing is to have a huge funeral, a huge procession and mourning and so on and so forth, and a lot of grave gifts. But compared to like the Christian hell, uh, where it's said that the gates of hell is closed from within, from inside, even God cannot open. I mean, you are there for eternity and there's no way you can escape. But in all other concepts of the afterlife, if it is one thing that is certain, you are never there permanent. You always return as an ancestor back to the living. And if the grave is an exit from this world and the entry to the next world, it is also basically the, the same way in the reversed form. It is where you return, maybe, from the afterworld back to this world. So a lot of the sacrifices, ceremonial rituals and so on and so forth, take place on grave mounds for centuries and even millennia. And the grave I'm working with, together with Anos Khalif, and we've been writing several books about this, is the Hoga burial mound outside Uppsala. Whatever happens at Hoga has a defining impact on large part of Scandinavian archaeology. The grave mound is around 50 meters in diameter, 6-8 meters in height, uh, dated around 1000 BC. And in the Bronze Age, which is a 1300 years period from 1800 to 500 plus minus, one third of all gold and gold fragments in the whole of the Swedish Bronze Age is found in that grave. It is a massive ritual manifestation, the richest burial in Scandinavia, and it is a cremated person is a cremated, uh, either chief or king, around 40, 60 years old. And he is buried in an oak coffin, which is similar to the Danish oak burials like the Egtvet. But the Egtvet and the Danish are originally unburnt, and this at Hoga is the first large-scale massive cremation burial. Oskar Almgren, who excavated this in 1902-1903, discovered that this charcoal layer is up to 95 centimeter in depth, which is an enormous amount of charcoal, which you cannot procure with just one cremation. So most likely you have had a lot of these fire rituals for centuries prior to the main cremation. And those fires are related to both purification fires, agriculture fires, and based on contemporary analysis of cremation fires from the Vedic areas and uh, India, Basically, if you have a cremation, uh, you can take the fire from the cremation and bring it back to the hearth in the household where you live. Or you can use the cremation, you can use a household fire and lighten the pyre where you burn the deceased. So what about the ancestors? Can you elaborate a little bit on this? If you want the ancestors, you basically want the good ancestors. Because as Peter mentioned, if you don't praise them, if you don't have songs and so on, even the best ancestors, the good ancestors, can become the most malevolent evil ones, and they will return. They come either by themselves, or you can make sacrifice and request them to come to solve problems and so on. And fire is one of the ways that you can open the entrance to the other world. By making a huge fire on the graves, this is kind of a portal to the other world, where you can access the ancestors, and the ancestors can come back on this side. So the fire rituals and the very long historic trajectories of the Indo-European fire rituals is perhaps one clue to understand both the entry to the next world, but also the entry back to this world, which was as important as the great funerals in themselves. I was just thinking about what Terry was saying now about preventing 
people from coming back or encouraging them to come back. It ties in with what Birgit was saying before. She was talking about how you have to bind the dead bodies to prevent them from coming back. And now you're talking about the fire and how to, to open the portals. So I think that's, that's a connection that we haven't really made before. <laughs> I think that's very interesting. And then, of course, I see a pattern here with the fame, but maybe someone else. What's it? I think it's also important to realize that notions about the dead can vary at the same time, at the same place, among the same people. We don't need to think that everybody thought of these things in the same way, consistently. We just need to think of, of ourselves, so to say. We behave in a certain way when we visit a graveyard, a burial place. Then there's the uh, obituaries with a picture of someone sailing away and, you know, a poem. But these ideas could really coexist. And I think this goes for prehistoric societies as well. I think it's very important to see what's essential here, what makes a difference. That's not notions about the afterlife, but it's treating the deceased, treating the bodies of the dead with a certain respect and in a ritualized way, which we couldn't take for granted because we could potentially think of this as a sanitary thing. Apparently, hominids didn't bother about the dead bodies in earlier periods. So we don't need to take this for granted. And then you can do different things with bodies. You can burn them. But it's a recurrent trait that you place the dead in a certain area close to your, where you live. So in that sense, the dead have a sort of existence within the community. They have the place where they are acknowledged and remembered. But then there are no, these notions about where they end up when they die, and that's a different thing. You don't need to interpret everything done to the dead bodies in those terms. It's not necessarily something you need to think of in terms of eschatology, notions about what will happen when, when we die, but the fact that people have treated their dead not as biomass, not as waste, but as something to sort of almost, in a very ritualized, intentional way, obstructing the biological necessity of death. And I think in archaeology, there's one question that has haunted the discipline for as long as archaeology has existed, and that is the relation between inhumation or a burial in the ground and cremation. I mean, why do you have two different funerals when the, the perception of the afterlives are the same? And if it was like, yeah, I mean, one funeral path to Valhall and one to hell, but it's not that easy. The different perceptions and different criteria that determines whether one gets one or the other. And identifying those are extremely difficult. And the early Indo-European, because they didn't use cremation. So cremation is a later, and it comes with uh, metallurgy and other factors. But from one point of view, cremation is the most obvious and easiest way to comprehend the journey of the soul. The body burns, you have the smoke, and the whole body goes up with the smoke to the sky, to heaven, and joins the gods. So cremation as a way of transporting the soul and the body is a very, very effective and visual way of illustrating this journey. But the paradox is that if this is a very, very effective visual way of showing this journey, why are people then buried? In a way, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned this because this is all part of a bigger quest. We were talking about this earlier, the treasure hunt and looking for the Indo-Europeans and what happened to them and the different stages. And this, what Tari is now bringing up, there's also layering in this, right? There's this cremation comes in at a certain point, at a certain place. 
and we have been discussing this the previous days here, because we do not have all the answers yet. So this symposium, in a way, is it's a stage, a part of what we're trying to achieve on a larger scale. And that's also to begin to see different layers, different times and different developments as the languages develop and the cultures, the European cultures. So, so in that sense, it's sort of a stop on the way to understanding more about the Europeans and their culture and language. And this also gives you a lot of more pieces to your gigantic puzzle to yeah, try to piece also, everything together. Yeah, and it's also what Anders Kalif was talking about, the maps that, the, that we get from the ancient DNA and that they also follow, I mean, for example, these fire rituals, he can see a pattern that is sort of very consistent with the same sort of where we find the maps based on the ancient DNA. So if you put the three maps on top of each other, like where are the languages spoken and where have they been spoken historically and how, how have people been moving and how can we follow these archaeological sites as well. And we put all three maps on top of each other and then we begin seeing a pattern. That's, that's basically what we do. Thank you for listening to this episode of SCUS Talk Spotlight, which was focusing on the symposium Indo-European Afterlives, which was held at SCUS in March 2023. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and I have talked to Jenny Larsson, Jan Bremer, Anders Kalif, Birgit Olsen, Ricardo Ginevra, Anders Jörgensen, Peter Jaksonrova, and Terje Östergaard. Thank you all for contributing to this episode with your thoughts and ideas about the Indo-European afterlife. The symposium was organized by the LAMP project in collaboration with SCUS. SCUS Talks is available on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes and most podcast apps. In our regular episodes, we feature the research of current and former scholars from a wide variety of disciplines, which is reflecting the multi-interdisciplinary research environment at SCUS. Tune in if you're not a regular listener already. Just search for SCUS Talks and subscribe to us. That way you won't miss any new content. As always, we are very happy if you can recommend SCUS Talks to your colleagues and friends. Thanks once again for listening and bye for now.